We should have repentant hearts and we should understand our sinfulness. We should realize and recognize and deal with the reality of our sinfulness apart from Christ and the struggle of the sinful flesh and the struggle of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Those are things, those are the three areas the Scripture talks about that you, you can really, any temptation that comes to you is going to fall in one of those three areas, if not all of them. Um, but the point of God revealing Christ to us is not so that we become discouraged about what we are not. The point of God revealing Christ to us is for us to have hope for what we are to be. And so when you get saved, when you get born again, you're not... There's two realities. You, you are seen by God the Father as He sees the Son. You are known by God the Father as He knows the Son. You are perfectly righteous in Him, in Christ. But there is also the reality that we are still in these unredeemed bodies, dealing with sinful flesh, dealing with the lust that's all around us. And those things pull on us, and those things sometimes are successful in pulling us down and causing us to fall. And when that happens, we need to deal honestly with that, and we need to turn to God and run to God and trust that God pours out His grace and helps us to grow up beyond those things that trip us up and that cause us to fail and to fall. And he reveals Christ to us so that we keep our eyes on Christ because it gives us hope of what we are to be. It gives us hope of how the Father sees us now and what we are becoming. We're not becoming Christ, but the Bible says we're becoming conformed. We're being conformed to the very image of the Son of God. So it's like, it's like my grandsons. They're children, they're babies right now. But they're growing up into the image of their father. They're their father's sons. And they're growing up into, that's what we are. We are growing up into something. We are growing up being conformed to something. We are going to one day realize that who we are is vastly different than what we were. It's kind of like taking a long journey or taking a hike. Uh, we went to the, Emilio was very gracious and, and uh, passed along four tickets to the UT game last night. It was an awesome game, by the way. And we had to park quite a ways away from the stadium. And I was sitting up uh, and I told him, I said, this is where I used to sit when I was a student. I went to all the home games when I was a student. And that was pretty much the section I sat in. And we were at the top of what used to be the top of the old stadium. They've added on to it now on that side. But so we were up kind of high. And so as I looked, I, I looked uh, and I could see where we came from. I could see the construction cranes and everything. And I, I thought, man, we walked a long ways. <laughs> we walked a long ways to get to the stadium. It's kind of like that in life. You know, you look back at life and you say, you should be able to say, I've come a long way. But I didn't come a long way in my own power, and my own strength. I've come a long way by the grace of God. 
And the point is that we are on a journey. We're headed in a direction. We have a destiny and a destination. And that destiny and that destination is Christ. And we are growing up in him in all things. So I want to encourage you to be hopeful. Don't be discouraged. Don't look at just your failures. Listen, deal with your failures honestly. Deal with your sin honestly, but don't let that discourage you. Don't look at your sin. Look at Christ who has overcome sin, and he will give you the grace to overcome the things that you struggle with. So look unto him. Focus on him. Let that image of Christ be burned into your vision so that you are being transformed into the very same image. Amen? All right, let's go to Genesis chapter 27. It's where we are. We're at the last part of 27. And I'm, we're going uh, to look at some verses in chapter 25 also that's going to help us. Uh, to understand what we're dealing with here in chapter 27. Now, I'll be honest with you right now. We're going to deal with some things that, are, uh, that, that, um, that give people trouble. We're going to deal with some doctrines, um, some truths that are difficult. Um, we've been doing our morning Bibles uh, reading, and uh, I don't know how we got on the subject well, no, it was actually, I think, during uh, our men's book study, we're reading a book called Shrink. It's a great book. Uh, it's not just a men's, a men's book. It's a book about the church. So man or woman, I would really encourage you. To, it's really a good, good book. It's called Shrink. It's about the church. Uh, I highly, highly recommend uh, that you read it. So this is the book that, uh, that we're, we're looking at on Friday nights right now. And somehow... In our discussion about uh, the book and about the church, <clears throat> we were talking Friday night about this gentleman who, uh, and, and this, is, this is a thing that's going on in the church right now. There's a doctrine called open theism. And so open theism basically says that uh, God, the Bible says God is omniscient, which means, which means God knows everything. But open theists say, well, yes, God knows everything, but yet he doesn't know everything. So the future is not known to God. There are some things that are not known to God because it doesn't exist yet. And so therefore God doesn't know. And, and these same people, this particular gentleman was saying, you know, basically Moses got it wrong and Elijah got it wrong and all these guys got it wrong, but Jesus got it right. And um, what they wrote wasn't really right. Like, Okay, well, right there, I got a problem with this because if we believe the scriptures are inspired by God and God told Moses what to write and what to do, then um, where does the ultimate blame? Are we saying that, you know, what are we saying? What are we saying? Well, <clears throat> what, what they're saying is really not a very good thing. And so you ask yourself this question, why, why are men saying these things? Why do we come up with these wacky doctrines? Why can't we just believe the Bible for what it says? And the reason a lot of people can't do that and have to come up with these alternate theories and theologies and belief systems that become so twisted and so weird is because the bottom line is we don't like, we don't like who God is. Because God is not like us, and we want God to be like us. And if we believe and trust that everything God says, 
and it contradicts who we are, what we want, or who we want God to be, then we've got a conflict there. And, and at that point of conflict, we can either accept God for who he is and submit to that and say, you are God and I am not. Who am I to say to you, O oh God, this is how you should be and this is what you should do. Or we do like what a lot of these guys do is we create alternate theologies and we try to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say to the point that now we're saying the Bible actually is not right. The writers of the Bible are really not right. They're wrong. That's a dangerous place to be. Well, what does all of this have to do with our message today? Well, let's get into that. Let's, uh, let's read Genesis 27. We're going to be, begin in verse 30, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Now, we've been talking about Esau and Jacob, and last week we saw how Rebekah was a type of Christ, Jacob was a type of the church, and we saw how Rebekah prepared Jacob to come into the presence of the Father to receive what he did not naturally deserve. And so in Genesis 27, starting in verse 30 to the end of the chapter, we see that Jacob has received the blessing of the firstborn from his father, and he received the blessing that Esau desired. Esau desired the blessing that Jacob got, but Esau didn't get the blessing that Jacob received. So let's read these verses, starting in verse 30. Genesis 27, verse 30. Now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of, of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. <clears throat> and he also made a savory food and brought it to the father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat for his son's game, eat some of his son's game, that your, your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed." And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and now look. He has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants with grain and wine, and I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of... That word of is an interesting word there. In the original Hebrew, it's a word that also means away. It literally means away. So here is... 
another way that we can read what, what Isaac prays over Esau. Behold, your dwelling shall be away from the fatness of the earth and of the dew away uh, of heaven away from away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my son, for my father, are at hand, and I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau and the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she went and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise to my brother Laban's in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you. And he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you, also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Okay, let's stop there. So we see uh, this picture where Jacob, uh, with the help of his mother, Rebekah, prepares a meal, brings it to Isaac. Isaac receives it, eats it, blesses Jacob with the blessing of the firstborn. Jacob exits, and as soon as Jacob exits, here comes Esau, and Esau prepares the food, brings it to Isaac. And Isaac said, uh, who are you? I'm your firstborn son, Esau. And he said, well, who was that that just came and brought me this food? I ate their food, and I gave them a blessing, and they will be blessed indeed. And Esau realizes what's happened, and he becomes angry, and he's begging his father to give him a blessing. And so this is the blessing. Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and, of, and, and the dew of heaven from above. Or it could read, literally, behold, your dwelling shall be away from the fatness of the earth and of the dew um, away from heaven above. Either way, the bottom line is Esau did not receive the blessing he desired. Because in that blessing, Isaac says to Esau, you're going to serve your brother. He will be master over you. And so Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which the father had blessed him. And I think that goes both ways. He hated Jacob because of the the blessing Jacob received from Isaac, his father, and he hated Jacob because of the blessing he received from Isaac, his father. He did not get what he desired. So the question is, why was Jacob blessed instead of Esau? Was it because Jacob was able to deceive his brother and rob his, uh, deceive his father and rob his brother? Or is there something else that we need to consider here? Because let's be honest, when you read the story on first glance after the service last week, I had someone come up to me and we were talking about this. And uh, this person said, man, I, I read that story about Jacob. And it's like, man, I just wanted to shut the book and say, I'm done with Jacob. That, that guy's a snake, man. He is worthless. 
He doesn't deserve anything. You know, and the, 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 the reality is that's true. Jacob is a snake who is worthless and doesn't deserve anything. That's not why Jacob got the blessing, because he deserved it. Remember, Jacob did not deserve it. It was not naturally his to have. Jacob had to go to his father in the identity of another, the one who would rightfully belong to in order to receive it. What's the point of the story? The point of that story is it's showing us how we come to the father. We don't come to the father deserving the blessing of the father. We come to the father clothed in, in the fragrance of another who deserves it, and the Father gives it to us in the identity, in the life of another. And so what do we do with this story where it looks like God has blessed the wickedness of Jacob? So why was Jacob blessed instead of Esau? Let's go back a couple of pages. Let's go to Genesis chapter 25, and let's go to the beginning of this account when, remember, Isaac marries Rebekah, he's 40 years old, and he prays for 20 years. And finally, after 20 years, Rebekah gets pregnant, and in her womb, she has twins. So let's pick the story up there. Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. There's these twins in her, in her womb, and they're struggling. They're fighting with one another. So these two brothers were fighting with one another, struggling with one another, before they even came out of Uh, Rebecca's womb. And verse 23 says, and the Lord, and she says, what's going on? What's happening inside of me? She inquired of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled uh, for her to give birth, indeed there was There were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. Jacob means, the the name Jacob means supplanter, but it literally means heel grabber, heel catcher. Jacob grabbed hold of Esau's heel when they're coming out of the womb. And, and it says, uh, he took hold of, of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Esau was 60 years old when she, uh, when she bore, when Rebekah bore these boys, these twins. So the boys grew, verse 27, and Esau, look at this, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac was a skillful, skillful hunter. Esau, I mean, Esau was a skillful hunter. Uh, uh, Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. I don't know what kind of images that description conjures up in your mind. Esau, the skillful hunter. Jacob, the mild man dwelling in tents. I mean, there is a contrast. Now, the New King James says Jacob was a mild man. The King James says Jacob was a plain man. The New American Standard says Jacob was a peaceful man. So what was he? Plain, mild, or peaceful? 
Now, what's interesting there, the word used to describe Jacob is the Hebrew word tam, T-A-M. And it's the same word used to describe Job in Job 1.1 when it says Job was a man upright and perfect, Tom, in all of his ways. And the Bible doesn't say and Job was, uh, an upright, was a man upright and mild or plain or peaceful in all of his ways. It says Job was a, a man upright and perfect in all of his ways. That is the word used to describe Jacob here. In the King James, that Hebrew word is translated perfect nine times. It's translated twice as undefiled, and it's translated once as upright. In the New American Standard, in those same verses, it's translated either blameless, guiltless, complete, or perfect. But in this one instance, that word used to mean blameless, upright, perfect, complete, all of those things is said, it's describing Jacob uh, differently. Does that mean your Bible is wrong? Uh, Well, it means that the translators who took the Hebrew from English are, are a little uncertain on exactly how that word should be translated and what it should be mean. But the Hebrew, the original text is very clear. It's the same word. So what are we to take from this? And the problem is because you see we're comparing Esau and Jacob. So there's a contrast here. That word does mean, it can mean plain. And that's why the King James translates it plain. He was a plain man a complete man, an upright man. It means all of those things. So if we're not careful, it could appear that Esau is the victim that was taken advantage of by his deceptive brother, by his mild-mannered, wimpy brother. Esau was a skillful hunter spending his time out in the field. Jacob was a plain man who spent his time in tents. If we don't rightly divide the scripture, Esau could appear to be a man's man, the skillful hunter who was victimized, while Jacob could appear to be, could appear in a less favorable favorable light, this kind of a sort of a wimpy maybe guy, this sneaky wimp who spent his time in the tent while his brother was out getting food for the family. If we're not careful, we can begin to judge things from a natural perspective, which, you know, the discussion I had last week, that's kind of what it was. You're reading this at face value and it's like, man, I don't like this guy, Jacob. Well, um, I don't understand why, you know, God allowed him to get away with this. If we look at it just at face value, you could kind of begin to think things like that, but you've got to look at it at a much deeper level. That's not, you got to look at, in other words, you've got to look at the whole scripture at face value, not just this story. Because if we look at the whole scripture at face value, we'll understand exactly what happened here. We'll, under exa- we'll understand exactly what's going on here. 
So in our culture today, it's very possible that Esau could uh, win the popularity contest between these two brothers. When it comes to our human nature and our character apart from Christ, we are all Esau and we are all Jacob. I love what Dr. J. Vernon McGee used to say. The question is not why did God hate Jacob, hate Esau and love Jacob. The question is why did God love Jacob? Not why did he hate Esau, but why did he love Jacob? Because what he's saying is the reality is they both deserved God's hatred because they were both sinful men, because they were both born in sin, separated from God. And when I say we are all like Esau and Jacob, that's exactly what I mean. No one merits or deserves God's love. God's lo- God loves the one he loves based on divine grace and mercy, not on human will or merit. God was justified in hating Esau. He was merciful in loving Jacob. He was just as justified to hate Jacob. He hated Esau justly, but in his mercy, he loved Jacob. Both deserved God's wrath, but one received his grace. So the blessing of the Father is based on divine grace, not human merit. And remember, this story is not just a moral lesson. The picture of Rebecca preparing her son to receive the blessing that was not naturally his is a picture of how Christ prepares us to receive from the Father what is not naturally ours. You can't understand this account without understanding who Christ is and what Christ has done for us and who Christ is for us. If we just take this away from Christ and look at it as a moral lesson, you might come up with a moral lesson, but you've misapplied the scripture totally and completely, and you're going to misjudge the situation, and you're going to end up feeling sorry for Esau and thinking sneaky, wimpy Isaac got away with something. When in reality, what the scripture says is that Isaac was a skillful hunter, but Jacob was a upright, a perfect man. Now, it's not translated that way, but that's what the original word says. And, and how are we to understand this? Let's go look at what the Bible further says concerning these two brothers. And I think we'll begin to see how the picture clears up a little bit for us. So the blessing of the Father is based on divine grace. It's not based on human merit. When we read the account of Esau and Jacob, we're tempted to find merit in one or another to justify why God hated one and why God loved the other. But that's not the point. God does not love us because we merit his love, but we absolutely merit his wrath, but we don't get his wrath. We don't merit his love. We merit his wrath. But God in his grace and in his mercy chooses to love those who don't deserve his love. God does not love you because he looked into the future and saw that you were lovable or that you were willing or, or that you were anything that would somehow merit his love. God has always known that we are wretched sinners in need of salvation. 
We are all like Esau, deserving his hatred, but in Christ we become like Jacob, receiving his love that we do not deserve. By grace we have received what another deserves. We have received not what we deserve, but what Christ alone deserves. Christ alone deserves the love of the Father, but we receive the Father's love in Christ. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? We don't deserve the Father's love, but in Christ we receive His love, even though we don't deserve it. The Bible uses a word that means righteous, upright for Jacob, even though we look at Jacob's life and we say Jacob doesn't deserve that label. But yet God in his grace gave that label to Jacob, not because Jacob was always perfect, not because Jacob did everything that was righteous, just like God gives to us the label righteous in Christ, not because are you always righteous? Are you perfect? Do you ever sin? Do you ever fail? Do you ever have bad thoughts? Do you ever commit bad deeds? Do you live a sinless life? No, you don't, and neither do I. But yet God calls me righteous. He calls me holy, not because I'm always righteous and holy, but because he is identifying me through someone else. He's giving me a a designation I do not deserve. Why does he do that? Because he's graceful. In his grace, God gives me a designation I do not deserve. God gave to Jacob a designation Jacob did not deserve, but yet God gave it to him in spite of the fact that he did not deserve it. This is the good news of the gospel, that we have received what we do not deserve. We receive it not by merit, but by grace in Jesus Christ. So let's go to, uh, let's, let's go to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to be in Malachi and Romans for a little bit. Go to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the last book before you get to Matthew. I'm going to preach through the book of Malachi sometime maybe beginning of next year. It's a great book. I love the book of Malachi. It's a tough book, though. But it's a good book. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Jacob, this this is what the Lord says. The Lord says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau... I have hated. Let's go to Romans. Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 6. 
If we don't understand the story of Jacob and Esau in, in the light of the, all the Scripture, we'll misapply it, we'll misinterpret it, we'll misunderstand it. And at best, we'll just take some moralistic lesson away from it and miss the entire point of why God created Esau and Jacob and put them in the Bible to begin with and wrote their stories the way he wrote their stories. God is the author of their stories, okay? Romans chapter 9, let's begin in verse uh, 6. Though, man, there's so much good here. Um, there's so much good here. Let's, let's begin in uh, verse 4. Uh, let's see. Verse, uh, let's just begin at the top of the chapter. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now that's a statement we should take note of right there. Paul says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying to you. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Somebody asked me one time, do you think Paul knew he was writing Scripture when he was writing his letters? I said, absolutely he did. He says it right here. I'm not lying to you. My conscience is bearing witness by the Holy Spirit. He, in other words, the Holy Spirit is the one that's inspiring me, convicting me, driving me to write this truth to you. This truth in Christ, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covering, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Remember, we talk about this a lot. You're not a child of God because you got it all together in the flesh. You're a child of God because you've been born again by the Spirit. You're a child of promise, not because you perfectly keep everything God's commanded you to keep. You're a child of promise because God in His grace transformed you from dead carnal man to alive in Christ. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Paul writes in Galatians, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for, look at this, verse 11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand 
not of works, but of him who calls. Was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Why did Jacob get the blessing? Because God ordained him to get it. When did God ordain him to get it? Before they were ever born, before they ever did any good or any evil. That the purpose of God might stand. According to election, as it is written, verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? If you've ever read these scriptures, honestly, and took time to ponder them and meditate on them, that is exactly the question you find yourself asking. How is that right? How can God hate Esau before Esau was ever born, having never done good nor evil? That doesn't seem fair. Shall we say, is there unrighteousness with God? Here's your answer. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on on whomever I will have compassion. So then, if it is not of him, let's just pause there for a moment. Therefore, if it is not of Esau who wills, therefore, if it is not of Jacob who wills, therefore, if it is not of fill your name in the blank who wills, therefore, if it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, nor of but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. That verse right there is why people come up with false, demonic, heretical doctrines like open theism. Surely God did not hate Esau because, just because he chose to hate him. Surely there was something Esau did that would cause God to hate him. This is where these great theologians who say, guys like Moses writing in Genesis, they got it wrong. Guys like Malachi, they got it wrong. They didn't really understand who God was. Really? Paul must have got it wrong, too. That means Jesus got it wrong, too. Hmm? Oh, no, they said Jesus didn't get it wrong. Everybody else got it wrong, but Jesus got it right. Well, so let's just cut all the parts of our Bible out that aren't printed in red. And let's only live by the words in red. Do you know if you did that, you would come up with the same truth that's found in all the Bible? That's exactly what Thomas Jefferson did. Thomas Jefferson wrote his own Bible, and he only included the words of Jesus in that Bible. Because he said, the words of Jesus are the only words I believe. I don't believe Paul. I don't believe Moses. I don't believe those other guys. If Jesus didn't say it, I don't believe it. 
Yet Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. Yet somehow we've got these guys who believe in open theism and, and all of these wacky doctrines who somehow don't believe God's going to send anyone to hell. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You will say then, here's another question. You've pondered that. This is the exact question that comes to your mind. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? See, this is the problem humanity has. And we see this problem in the very beginning in the garden. Adam and Eve wanted it to be all about them. And they were willing to disobey God and risk death, separation from God, in order to make it all about them. When we say, when we say this, when we ask this question, bringing an accusation against God, then God, how can you still find fault? For who can resist your will? The answer to that is, who are you, O man, to reply against God? Will the thing formed Do you realize we are the thing formed? We are creation. He is creator. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. Here's how we understand this. To make one for drinking out of and one for expelling our waste into. That's how we understand this. They're all made from the same, the same, the same, from the same lump of clay. God makes the cup we drink out of and God makes the, the vessel we drink out of and God makes the vessel we eliminate our waste into. They all come from the same lump of clay. What's the difference? The potter made one for honor and he made one for dishonor. We don't like this. A lot of Christians, don't, they don't even deal with these chapters in the Bible because they don't like them. And they don't like them because this, this truth right here, Paul bore witness, because this truth right here, this is where God is separated from man. We can, we can write books and we can fashion and craft sermons and we can create theologies and we can do all of these things to make God just like us. But if we take the Bible for what it says and we take it as the truth that it declares itself to be, this is where, when you read the story of Jacob and Esau, when you read throughout the scripture, really, we just don't have eyes to see it because we want to be willfully blind to this truth. God is not man. God is not a man that he should lie, the Bible says. God is not like us. He is other than us. 
His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. He has the right because he is God to take the same lump of clay and make one a cup we drink out of and one a pot we poop into. That sounds offensive, but it's true. How do we know it's true, Pastor Jeff? Because the Bible. How can, you, how can you run from this? But yet men run from it all the time. And you know why men run from it? They run from it because they are afraid to allow God to be who he truly is. It's just an illusion. We, we deceive ourselves. God is who he is, whether we allow him or not. God is who he is, whether we believe it or not. God is who he is, whether we declare it or not. God is who he is, whether we ever read it or not. So a lot of people just choose not to read it. They like to get their God defined by the movies and by TV and by wishful thinking and by putting and mashing together all kinds of their favorite doctrines from all their favorite religions. And then we create this God who's like, you know, he's not a God. He's a monster. He's a, he's a demon. He's a creation of man. He's, it's not real. This is the real God. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? This is why I told you what I told you at the beginning, because I knew we were going to talk about these things today. God has not revealed Christ to make you discouraged because of what you are not. He's revealed Christ to give you hope of what you are to be. How are you to become what you are to be? You will become that by the grace of God. You will become that through the power of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit. God reveals Christ to you because he wants you to see that you are a work in progress. He wants you to know that you can't do this of yourself. It's not of you who wills. It's not of you who runs. It's not of you who works really hard to become something God wants you to be. It's you who will surrender and submit to God and say, God, without you, I am nothing. God, without you, I can't do anything. I can't be anything. Christ, without the grace that I can only find in you, I am lost and undone and dead. And I have absolutely no hope. When you cry out to God from a heart that realizes that, I want you to know something. You didn't realize that on your own. You didn't just through a series of logical arguments come to that place that you know you need God. Listen, if you know you need God right now, you've come to that place because God opened your blind eyes, because God opened your deaf ears. If you're hearing me right now and you're understanding what I'm saying, it's because God has opened your hard heart and he's opened your mind and he's opened your eyes and he's opened your ears to the truth of the gospel. And he wants you to have hope of what you are to be. He wants you to have hope that the Holy Spirit is working in you right now to conform you to the very image of the Son of God. He has done that by his grace. What if God wanting to show, verse 22, his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory 
even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And thus he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. That's, that's us. He calls us. If you've put your faith in Jesus, he's called you his people who are not his people. He's called you his beloved who are not his beloved. How did you become his people? How did you become his beloved? By grace. That's how you did it. Not because you willed, not because you ran, not because you worked. By grace, you did it. Do you recognize the grace of God? Therefore, Jacob received the blessing, not because he was more cunning or deceitful, not because he was more deserving, not because of any reason except the grace of God. But because God in his grace chose to bless him with the blessing of the firstborn so that he would more clearly see and know so that we would more clearly see and know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Esau begged his father for a blessing, but what came out of Isaac's mouth was not what Esau was hoping for. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing given by Isaac. Let's go over to the book of Hebrews and we'll fill the picture in a little bit more. Can you guys hang with me? Hebrews 11.20. This is really not about, uh, this is about Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. What was to come for Esau was not a good thing. And, and what Jacob said to Esau, recorded in Genesis, revealed that. And Esau didn't like what he saw was to come. <coughs> Excuse me. Go to the next chapter, chapter 12 of Hebrews, and look at verse 16. Hebrews twelve sixteen. says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. So what is the script? What, who was Esau? He was a fornicator and profane person. He was a profane person. Like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He sought it, but he couldn't find it. There was no repentance in Esau. So don't be fooled by Esau's sorrow. Repentance was not found in him because it was not granted to him by God. Esau was cursed because repentance was not found in him. Repentance was not found in him because Esau was cursed. Say it any way you want to. But don't be fooled by Esau's sorrow because Esau's sorrow was not because he had sinned against God. Do you understand this? Read closely. Esau was not sorry because he sinned against God. Esau was sorry because he lost something that he wanted. Because he had lost his earthly inheritance. Esau had no concern for the spiritual inheritance and the promise that was the true and lasting treasure, the true and lasting inheritance, he had no interest in that. What he wanted was all the stuff 
He wanted all the land. He wanted all the livestock. He wanted all the gold and all the silver, all the power, all the authority that was going to go with the name of the firstborn that came from Abraham, his grandfather, Isaac, his father. That's what he wanted. That's what he sorrowed over. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10 says, Paul writes this. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's the sorrow Esau had, was the sorrow of the world. He did not have godly sorrow that led to repentance. Otherwise, repentance would have been found in him. In other words, he wasn't sorry that he sinned against God because that's who he sinned against. He didn't just give his birthright right away and that was irresponsible and that was dumb and stupid of him. When he gave his birthright away, he sinned against God. But he had absolutely no sorrow for his sin against God, which, by the way, was much greater than just selling his birthright. Esau sold his birthright for earthly things and it was for earthly things lost that Esau sorrowed. So the blessing of the Father is by grace. And the blessing of the Father is in Christ by grace through faith alone. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of the grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And in Ephesians chapter 2, a scripture you're probably all very familiar with, Let's begin reading in, in uh, Ephesians 2, verse 4. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Where is his grace and kindness toward us? It is in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You don't work for a gift. You don't pay for a gift. You receive a gift. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you might wonder, if salvation is by grace alone, and we have nothing to do with it, and God is God and will do what he chooses, then what is the point in preaching the gospel? I mean, isn't God going to save who he chooses to save? Why should we even bother to preach the gospel? That, I think that's a valid question too. And the short answer is yes, God is going to save who he desires to save. He will do that. 
But we also need to understand that the preaching of the gospel is about much more than the salvation of men. If we reduce the gospel down to simply being chiefly about the salvation of saving men, these become really troublesome scriptures. But if we understand that the preaching of the gospel is about much more than simply the salvation of men, and this is what we've done. We've, we've reduced the gospel down to, to really nothing more than a formula by which we get saved. And it's all about saving men. And what we've done is we've taken the truth of God and we've focused it on ourselves. We focused it on man. And it becomes for man, about man. I mean, it's all about us. It's all about us, Jesus. That's, that's what we want it to be. That's what Adam and Eve did when they ate of the fruit and disobeyed God. It wasn't about them. It was never about them. It's always been about God. The gospel is not about us. It's for us, but it's always been about God and his glory. Our purpose in proclaiming the gospel, listen to me, this is so important. If you don't remember anything else I said today, I want you to remember this. Our purpose in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples is not ultimately for the salvation of men. It is ultimately for the glory of God. If it's just about the salvation of men and God is going to save who God chooses to save, and we have no, it's not on how we will or how we run or what we can do to merit it or to get it, then what's the point? Just let's just all sit back and live life, do what we want to do, because God's going to do what he wants to do. Why bother? Why do I why do I get up here week in and week out and preach the gospel if 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 God's just going to do what he wants to do anyways? I'll tell you why. Because the preaching of the gospel is not chiefly about the salvation of men. The preaching of the gospel and everything in the created order is about the glory of God. We are not proclaiming the salvation of men. We are proclaiming the glory of God. We are commanded to proclaim the glory of God. And we are commanded to command men to believe, to glorify Jesus, to glorify God. And when they refuse to do that, the same gospel that can save them is the same gospel that will condemn them. And God is glorified in their salvation, and God is glorified in their condemnation. Let me ask, how many of you would like to live in a house without a toilet? Anybody? I mean, they're pretty disgusting things, right? You ever, guys, you ever had to fix one? I mean, you know, you get the Clorox out, and you wipe that thing down, and it's like, even after you wipe it down with bleach, and you've disinfected it in every nook and cranny that you possibly can, you still got to get down there and hug that thing and work on it. It's just kind of disgusting. But I can tell you this, wouldn't want to live in a house without one, right? You can't have a doctrine of heaven without a doctrine of hell. You can't have a doctrine of salvation to life without a doctrine of, uh, of condemnation unto destruction. You can't. You don't. You know why? Not because man came up with that thing. Because that's who God is. Because God is the author. Because God's writing the story. Because God ordered everything. 
we don't get to pick and choose what we want to believe and how we want to believe it. We deceive ourselves when we do that. We've got to take the Bible and we've got to let the Bible be the final authority. That means I must conform my mind, my will, myself to this word right here. I can't make God someone that he is not, no matter how much I want to. No matter how much I want to be able to drink water out of my toilet, I'm just not going to do it because that's not what it's made for. It is not made to drink out of. Your cat and your dog may drink out of it, but they're not human. Jacob received an irrevocable blessing from his father. Listen, we are commanded to preach and to proclaim the gospel to all men in all creation, saved or lost. The gospel is ultimately a declaration of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We are commanded and we are privileged to proclaim his glory. So this irrevocable blessing that Jacob received from his father, this is type in the shadow of the blessing that's given to us in Christ by the Father in heaven. And that blessing that we have in Christ is irrevocable. Because we didn't do anything to get it. If I paid for it, if I earned it, then I have the right to rescind it. And I don't. There is no other blessing but the blessing that is in Christ. That blessing is irrevocable and wholly based on the merit that is given to us in, by, and for Christ Jesus. Anything outside of Christ is not a blessing, but ultimately... A curse. So the blessing of the Father has come to us in spite of us. Do you see that? Don't focus on why God hated Esau. You should really be asking yourself why God loved Jacob. Don't ask yourself, why is God going to send some people to hell? Ask yourself, why on God's green earth would he allow me to go to heaven? Because that's really the question we should be asking. The blessing of the Father has come to us in spite of us. It came to Jacob in spite of Jacob. It comes to us in spite of us. It has become, not because of us, it has, be, it has come because of Christ. In Christ, God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And every spiritual blessing is every blessing that endures. It is blessing that cannot fade. It cannot pass away. It's every blessing in Christ It's eternal to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted and blessed in the beloved. To him, this is this Paul is, I'm quoting Paul, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory. Why? Because he made us accepted in the beloved. He made us acceptable to the Father. Rebecca made Jacob acceptable to Isaac. Christ has made us acceptable to to the Father. We have received the irrevocable blessing in Christ. The praise and the glory doesn't go to Jacob. It doesn't go to us. It goes to God. Because we didn't do it in ourselves and we didn't come in ourselves. We came in the identity of another. We came and we come to the Father in Christ. Let's stand.
And when we come to the Father in Christ, we receive that blessing from the Father, that blessing that is found in Christ. We receive the love of the Father because we come in Christ, because Christ is the only one who deserves the Father's love. But the Father's love is given to us and received by us because we are in Christ. And we have become partakers of that love. Remember what the scripture says in the beginning of this story. Esau, Isaac loved Esau because of the game he ate. But Rebekah loved Jacob. I challenge you to love what God loves for his glory. Not for what it will simply do for you. Isaac loved Esau for the game he ate. That tells me there was a selfish motive there. It was the wrong motive. The Bible says God hated Esau. Why? Because the Bible says Esau was a profane person. The Bible says when God hated us, when we were God's enemies, hostile to him, separated from him, Christ died for us. And now when we receive the love of the Father, we receive it in, for, and because of Christ. So I challenge you to love and to seek the things that God loves above all other things. And what the Father loves above all things is His Son. And if you will seek the Son, and if you will seek a love for the Son, and all things that pertain to the Son, you will discover the true blessing of the Father in heaven. For in that you will find the heart of the Heavenly Father for His Son. And when you find the heart of the Heavenly Father for His Son, when you begin to read the Bible and see the heart of the Father for the Son and realize that God has brought you into that love by His grace and has given to you those things in Christ, it will cause you to begin to see things, to see everything differently. And the things that we tend to want to seek after selfishly, we no longer seek after those things. But in our pursuit of Christ, we find that we receive things that we could have never received otherwise. We receive a joy. We receive a happiness. We receive a fulfillment. We receive blessing beyond what we can think or imagine. Seek Christ and find the heart of the Father and find His joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Preach the gospel, live the gospel, not simply for the salvation of men, but first and foremost, live it and preach it for the gospel, for the glory of God. Live your life for the glory of God. Realize that God is working in you for his glory. God is molding and shaping you for his glory. When God points out your failures, when he convicts you of your sin, he doesn't do it for your condemnation. He does it for his glory. 
So, Father, we pray right now that you would change our hearts and change our minds, that you would give us eyes to see Christ, that you would give us a heart to seek after Christ, that we would love what you love, that we would hate what you hate. Lord, not that we would hate people, but God, we would love you first and foremost. And we would understand that people and the salvation of people, Lord, that's in your hands. That's in your control. We have no power to save anyone, but you've given us, Lord, the power and the ability to glorify you. And if we will live our lives, Lord, seeking, desiring to glorify you, Lord, then the salvation of men will take care of itself. The glory of God will be made known and proclaimed through our lives, through our words, through our actions. Lord, we will find a joy in a glory in you that is unspeakable, that money can't buy, that nothing of this world can give to us. God, give us that heart to see Christ, to seek Christ, to know Christ, to glorify you in all things and trust that you are the Lord, the sovereign God. That Lord, if we know that you love us, you love us in spite of ourselves. You love us because of Christ. And it is because of Christ we pray this. It is because of Christ we ask this. For your glory, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.